This is Give Me Some Truth. This podcast features appearances from Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, and myself, Mitch DeWitt, from Walkner Condon Financial Advisors in Madison, Wisconsin. Give Me Some Truth is dedicated to providing an accessible and authentic view into the financial services industry, as well as current events and investment concepts that you can apply in your day-to-day life. Here are your hosts. truth uh today if we are banging around a little bit more on the laptops and uh you know kind of moving things around it's because we are doing a uh market snapshot of the last quarter here and we're looking at some charts uh we're going to provide the charts on our blog and perhaps in this um uh podcast uh like the notes or whatever we'll just see if we can get them in there but if if you can't find them in there look at our uh, blog and we'll post them up there too so we've sele- taken some selected slides from the uh, Guide to the Markets from J.P. Morgan, and uh, we'll say this with a compliance eye, saying that we're just going to talk about what happened uh, over the last quarter and also just kind of give uh, a little bit of color as far as what's going on and how we may see things, but you're not supposed to rely on any of this as investment advice, nor you're supposed to like sell your whole portfolio and go all into stocks just because Nate said it's a good time to be in the market or something like that. So compliance all over the place. Don't use this information uh, to make decisions on your portfolio. Ask a trusted professional and we'll help you out and decide whether or not it's applicable to your financial situation, your hopes, goals, dreams, et cetera. So um, Nate, what do you want to start with? There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. Yeah, I think the the, um, kind of the most uh, kind of eye-opening part of the third quarter, which is what we're talking about right now. It's, uh, um, you know, it's not a year review. It's not a year to date. It's not a, you know, here's what's happened since last year at this time. And we're literally just talking about the last three months while we will reference some um, data points that might be beyond the scope of the last three months. That's really what this podcast is designed to do. And the one that we do in January will be um, designed to tell you about what happened in the fourth quarter. So, uh, it really is more of an informative, hey, this is kind of what happened, and as a as a result of what happened, this may be what happens in the fourth quarter, so we're going to kind of cover both of those things, but as Clint said, it's, it's, not, it's not to be thought of as a, um, okay, these guys are, are going to try to predict the future. I mean, we realize that part of our job is to make... Um, you know, kind of informed allocation decisions based on what we think is going to happen. But at the same time, um, you know, we're, we're not we're not predicting individual stocks are going to move by this percentage or or, um, you know, here's here's where you should be for the next 60 days. Stock trading is not what we do. So this is a long it's more of a long view than it is a short view, although the uh, uh, the last three months um, was a, a pretty surprising three month period of time. And, and it was really driven by uh, the divergence of uh, the U.S. stock market and primarily U.S. large caps um, and how they moved away in a uh, a pretty drastic way or in a pretty drastic amount, I should say, from um, the international markets. 
so let's just spend a little bit of time and talking about why that happened. So, Clint, what are a couple of reasons why that happened in the uh, in the third quarter? Well, there's, there's a couple of reasons here that kind of lend this sort of performance. Now, the quarter, and it's really interesting. We're doing it really a week after the quarter, and uh, the the narrative really has changed. But uh, when we ended the quarter, uh, we ended the quarter very strongly in stocks. Uh, stocks were doing very well. Um, and when I say stocks, I'm more referring to U.S. stocks, um, like the S&P 500 and uh, you know Dow Jones. And so had a very strong quarter. Um, and meanwhile, during that time, the developed markets and emerging markets have not performed very well. And you take that even further into October, um, the first week here, and we've seen that um, U.S. stocks then have started to struggle, kind of uh, put the brakes on a bit, and emerging markets and developed markets also um, are struggling as well. And this is due to a couple different reasons. Um, number one, the the reason is is that we've seen some currency appreciation um, from the U.S. dollar, and generally that's negative for um, non-U.S. stocks. So you know, dollar strengthens, emerging markets uh, you know weaken from a you know from a stock price. The second thing is that we've had a lot of trade talk, and it started really in the second quarter, and it's uh, gone through um, into the third quarter now, and we've started to see in the economic data. So the tariff talk and the trade wars that have been going on are having a material impact in what we're seeing in uh, stock prices and anticipated rates of return. So we've actually started to see a bunch of earnings restatements to the negative um, for future quarters. So that shows that they are looking at a slowdown of economic growth. And also, as the tax code is kind of digested during that period of time, um, the impacts of the tax code changes. Uh, we get a stimulus right in the front end, and then uh, it dissipates over time. So, um, you know, the impact, the positive impact of the tax code uh, changes and the tax cuts both on the business and personal levels levels will start to wane. And so, therefore, that will also be reflected in stock prices. So there was some run-up prior to the, you know, it's not like the, re- the legislation is signed and then all of a sudden the market goes up. There's anticipation of that. The market was running before that happened and then it, it came to fruition and then it ran up some more. So um, that kind of... I'm not going to really call it sugar high, but um, you know some of that uh, sort of run up and gains have already been made, and we're starting to see uh, it pull back a little bit from there. Yeah, and I think the the um, the proof is in the pudding in terms of what we're referring to here, um, especially with the tariff talk that Clint alluded to, and the in the uh, the strengthening of the dollar and kind of what that means. Um, depending on the day, uh, so again, I'm going to caveat it by that because it changes every day, and we're not we're not using exact terms. But depending on the day, um, you know, you have the uh, uh, U.S. large cap market, the S&P 500, up somewhere in the seven percent range for the year. Conversely, you have um, developed international, depending on what index you look at, down somewhere in the seven percent range, and you have emerging markets down somewhere in the low teens. Again, depending on what index you look at, so. We're not talking about a small divergence. We're not saying that there's a two or three percent swing between the markets. We're talking about, um, you know, U.S. large cap versus developed international, a fourteen point ish, depending on the day you look at it, swing in rate of return for the year. Um, that's a massive, massive disconnect between those two markets, and it's a bigger disconnect when you compare U.S. to, to emerging. So, and then we haven't even spoke about the bond market. We'll get to that in just a minute. But um, so we've had clients that have asked, that, and, and more so lately, and rightly so. So I don't understand. Quote: cool, The market is up. So how come I'm I'm either flat or down? Well, we have to kind of unpack that idea a little bit. First of all, when we say the market, 
we're really referring to in most cases U.S. large cap only. Uh, when the uh, Dow Jones get quoted, when the S and P gets quoted um, on the evening news, they're really talking about U.S. large caps as a single slice of the overall market, not the market. And so while that slice of the market has performed well, we have other slices of the market that have been under uh, tremendous pressure this year. And so when we look at the global um, you know, returns, we look at the global markets and, and, and sectors, ultimately what we, what we come up with as a conclusion is that it's not been nearly as rosy um, around the globe as it has been in the United States. Uh, we have seen a, a tremendous year in the United States by way of GDP growth, by way of unemployment going down, by way of uh, corporate profits and, and, and corporate earnings. Uh, the rest of the world has not seen that. And so that's, I think, a, a piece that, that doesn't get spoken about um, nearly as much, if at all, uh, on the evening news or, or uh, headlines of the, uh, you know, the local papers. Yeah, we talk about rates of return, um, and I'll reference one of the slides that we have here. Rate of return here for the uh, All Country World Index, XUS, so basically everyone except for us, um, against the S&P 500. Since 2009, the S&P 500 is up about 331%, and the, uh, the world market, excluding the U.S., is up 115%. So that's a huge difference in performance. Um, and then, you know, we get this question a lot, you know, is the U.S. market overvalued or undervalued? How do you see it? Well, if we look at the forward price-to-earnings ratios, just one metric we, we can look at to determine, you know, how expensive or inexpensive the market is, um, the PE is at about 16.8 uh, from the U.S., and the 20-year average is uh, 15.9. So it's it would indicate that that would indicate that it's slightly overvalued, but not wildly overvalued. We've we've heard some clients say, you know, is this a bubble? I feel like we're in a bubble. Um, the numbers wouldn't play that out. It, it does not indicate that we're in a bubble. Um, we're not tremendously overvalued. Now, if you take a look at uh, international stocks, the forward price earnings are 12.9 uh, for forward price earnings as of September 30th, and the 20-year uh, average is 14.3. So we see an undervaluation there if we look at just that metric um, there. So, you know, we believe that there's a, a bit of a, uh, a situation where there's a little bit more value in international stocks. And uh, we also believe that, you know, we really should diversify our portfolios and look outside the U.S., and we have, historically speaking. And, uh, you know, this year that doesn't really play out very well, um, you know, for rates of return. You know, if you had a highly U.S.-centric portfolio, you're doing a lot better than if you had a global portfolio. And uh, we've said this before, but uh, diversification sometimes doesn't work, and this appears to be one of those years where it, it doesn't work as well. Well, and I think that that's a good point, and, and we'll steal a phrase from one of the investment companies that we use. Um, you know, they, they like to say that their portfolios don't work every time, they work over time. And I think that that's a great way to kind of explain what we're talking about here. So what we mean by that is diversification doesn't work every time, meaning it doesn't work in every quarter, every year, every three-year, five-year period of time. Um, it, it doesn't work. I mean, there, there are periods of time where it will not work, but it works over time, meaning that if we give it enough time, diversification, um, almost more than just about any other investment strategy that you can point to in the last 100 years, um, is as uh, strong of a uh, predictor of, of, of positive rates of return as just about anything you can point to. So over time, it will work. But I think that the problem with diversification is when it works, 
it it kind of works in a boring kind of a okay I'm up but I'm I'm you know I expect to be up uh you, you know fashion but when it doesn't work boy it's a, it's a, a bright shining light right on it in terms of what's wrong well there's really nothing wrong we're just in a period of time where diversification uh is lagging um you know a, a US centric and especially a large cap US centric portfolio that will not persist if history is any guide and empirical data is any guide that will not persist so for the people that think that this is quote the new normal that's not right it, it's it's more of a period of time where we have disconnect uh, that disconnect um, in free markets corrects itself and generally corrects itself relatively quickly. Um, so in our view of the world, uh, this is just one of those times where it just didn't work as well. Um, and, and again, we're, we're only talking about how to short period of time. This, this goes back to, you know, kind of May, June, somewhere in there where this disconnect really started to happen. So it's not as though we're talking about a two-year period of time. We're really talking about, you know, since the summer, um, you know, and, and it's now October. So we're, we're talking about a relatively short period of time, but that's the reason why uh, there's that disconnect in the portfolios. That's right. And, um, you know, a couple other things to highlight um, here. You know, some people ask us, hey, you know, is it a situation where, you know, this is this economic expansion is long in the tooth and, you know, we're due for a recession? And um, I would I would say and counter that by saying, you know, until the economic data starts to go more negative, we're not going to enter into a recession. So um, there's no way that today we can be in a recession because a recession is basically uh, two quarters of negative economic growth. That's the economic um, definition of that. And, and oftentimes we don't know we're in a recession until we're out of it. Uh, but we're certainly not in that situation where we have negative economic growth. In fact, it's been accelerating. Uh, the expansion that we're in right now is 111 months, and the average economic expansion is 47 months. So, I mean, that's a really long period of time. Uh, one can argue that we had a little pause in there. Uh, a few years ago, we had uh, a situation where earnings were actually kind of receding, and it didn't look as positive. So um, our average recession lasts 15 months. Um, you know, so that's not a very long time. And oftentimes, you know, we kind of are halfway or all the way out of it before we even can identify that it was a recession. So we are looking at economic data. Um, that does suggest that we are not going to be growing as rapidly as we are today. That does not mean that stock prices can't go up further. Um, you know, it, it will be a situation where, uh, stock prices will slide when we have an economic shock that we don't expect. Um, or the earnings meaningfully decline. And for right now, we're going to have to see a fair amount of decline in those um, right now. And and one other thing, too, that we hear from some clients, too, is, you know, our, you know stock buybacks are fueling all the stock prices up. It's not real. You know, it's just them buying their own stocks back due to the tax code and things like that. One thing that is true is there is a tremendous amount of stock buybacks going on. That is definitely true. Um, that is part of what has been driving stock prices higher, but it is not um, the only thing that is driving uh, things you know further. Uh, the economic data that we see going on right now is very strong, um, and it's not just kind of this this sugar high that all of a sudden you know we have this this tax cut and that's going on. We see um, the global purchasing managers index, which is kind of a manufacturing momentum index. Um, has is wildly positive right now. You can see that in one of the slides that we have, um, where it kind of shows a, a red to green continuum, and um, it's very very strong uh, for manufacturing on a quarterly basis. Since so there's a lot of momentum in that sector and others, uh, and you know things like 
some of the data in here is just amazing to me because you look at things like housing starts. Um, you know, housing starts are finally up to uh, an average level this year. So ever since the recession, uh, we've had almost 10 years. We've really had 10 years of under average housing starts, and we finally reached the housing start point. So another thing we hear around here, around Madison, since the real estate market's so strong, you know, uh, this seems like a housing bubble again. Well, part of the issue was is that there were so few houses being constructed from 2008 all the way up to about 2014, and then it started to accelerate, um, that we are well below the average. And so we still need to build more houses to actually catch up to um, the population growth. So that's pretty interesting to, to hear all of that. So that's part of the reason why prices have gone up um, in a lot of these markets is that supply has been constrained artificially by uh, the recession, and now we're starting to see us come out of that a bit. Yeah, I think that that's a great point, especially here in, in Madison and Dane County. Um, but it, it, it's not uh, it's not exclusive to just Madison, Dane County, or even Wisconsin. It, it's just the story uh, in in um, tremendous uh, number of the counties and, and areas of the country. The reason why people are getting what people are are seeing as exorbitantly high prices for their houses. I think we all have stories of, oh my gosh, my neighbor sold their house for X amount of dollars. I can't believe that it's you know. Twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars higher than I thought it would be. A lot of that has to do with the fact that there are not enough new houses out there for sale. And if you had new housing starts where they needed to be, you would not have existing homes selling at those premiums because you would have the competition of new home model home um, inventory on the market uh, to help uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, satisfy some of that appetite. So that's part of the reason. And so while while it feels like oh my god, this housing um, a boom is, is, is out of control. It, not only is it not out of control, it's it's kind of keeping pace with where it should be in terms of, of all the new buyers in the market. And again, especially in the Dane County area because of the uh, expansion that we have of some of the uh, the tech firms, um, you know, government expanding, uh, you know, the healthcare industry expanding. I mean, there's definitely some sectors in Madison that are, are bringing people in by, uh, you know, by the hundreds, if not the thousands. And so, um, our view of the world is that while interest rates are going up and that will likely slow things down a little bit, uh, we do not see that the housing market is, you know, teetering on the brink of, you know, oh my gosh, this is going to um, fall and, and slide into some sort of housing recession in the next year either. That's not our, our estimation. Can it continue to run at the level that it's been running to this point? Uh, no, probably not. And, and again, that's a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know, mortgage rates are going up. And so uh, that that likely will slow things a little bit. But at the same time, um, you know, when you have a supply demand imbalance, um, you know, that, that takes a while for it to work itself out of the system. And so that's, uh, that's essentially what we're seeing right now. And one of the other things that I've heard, too, is that, uh, you know, you can always <laughs> you can always make numbers convenient for whatever story you kind of want to tell. Um, so, you know, I, I've heard the statistic out there that we've never had this much debt, uh, consumer debt, you know, that's credit cards and auto loans and student debt and, and uh, you know, mortgage debt, all that debt. We've never had more debt as a country as we've had right now. And while that might be true, we need to look at the ratio between the debt payments as a percentage of somebody's disposable income. And uh, J.P. Morgan's chart says that, that we're at the lowest level since they started tracking this in 1980 or since 1980. 
um, since the chart was. So, I mean, in to contrast that, it was about 13.2% in fourth quarter of 2007, right before the recession. And the consumer has been deleveraging that whole time, and now it's at 9.9%. Um, at the first quarter of, uh, of 1980, it was 10.6%, and that was the... Uh, it was one of the low points in there. So we're actually at a really low point in debt service. Now, there's a number of different factors for that. I mean, um, you know, one can say that, you know, because we have so many baby boomers and they've paid down their debt over time um, and they've continued to pay down their debt, uh, that they're in a lot better economic situation than, say, somebody that's a millennial getting out with $150,000 of student loan debt. So we won't get into the, you know, kind of political or the problematic things that, um, you know, there might be kind of a barbell here where, uh, the boomers are in really good shape, and then some younger people are not in very good shape. But uh, that being said, overall, the consumer's balance sheet is very healthy right now, and uh, there's not a uh, ridiculous amount of debt going on. Now, <laughs> we'll look at another spot in here that, that is concerning long-term, and that is that uh, the baseline forecast for our federal deficits look terrible. Um, and, you know, the deficits were at a really high percentage of GDP, back in 2008, and it kind of went down here. Um, and in 2017, was about 3.5%. Uh, and, and in 2028, it's projected to be 5.1% uh, of GDP, which is quite high. And our deficits look to be very large going forward. So, I mean, that is concerning, um, you know, and how how that's going to all shake out is to be determined. Um, you know, the, the 2018 federal budget... Um, the borrowing costs, uh, borrowing is going to be about 19% of the federal budget, and that's only going to go up. So, I mean, there's just not a ton of, uh, you know, good news here on, on that side of things. Um, we're going to have to see higher taxation and or um, a, a decrease in government spending or a decrease in entitlement programs to even make up for this. And even that might not be enough. So our deficit forecast is very grim uh, long term. Um, you know, our politicians will continue to probably kick the can down the road and not deal with that. But um, at some point, it will have to be dealt with. And, and it likely will just mean that we're going to see slower growth in the future. Um, and the government will be a drag on the economy because it will not be able to, um, you know, it's not going to have the wherewithal to spend during those periods of time uh, because it's just simply going to have too much in borrowing costs. So uh, that's going to be a component of GDP uh, going forward. Yeah, and that's one of the areas that, that does concern us about the economy. I mean, you know, there's there's some some uh, headwinds for sure. Not everything is is uh, good news, and I think that's part of the reason why um, you know you are seeing some articles get written and some people talking about you know is this is this getting long in the tooth? I think that is the evidence that some people are using is you know we have uh, deficits which are unsustainable, kind of uncontrollable under the current environment. You know that has to be addressed, and we also have. Um, you know, rising interest rates, like we've spoken about, uh, uh, you know, briefly here, but we can get into a little bit further. Um, you know, Clinton and I are, are fans of the Fed raising rates from the standpoint of they needed to be raised uh, at some point. Um, we needed to get back into a more normal, you know, quote, normal interest rate policy. And I think that that's kind of where, where we're at slash headed. 
However, um, that's not without pain. You know, I think anybody that goes on uh, goes on a diet can can attest to the fact that while you are healthier, you know, a month into a diet um, than you were the month before the diet started, it doesn't mean that you are happy about it and that you are, um, you know, just able to eat eggs, you know, everything you did before and not have to exercise. It comes with pain, and that's essentially where we're at right now. Is the Fed is saying, okay, it's time now you know, for the, for the country to, to kind of go on the diet and, and, and to pay higher interest rates, um, which the, the piece that the, the, a lot of people don't understand about this, and we're not going to get deep into a bond conversation um, and how bonds work because um, we don't want people to fall asleep if they're listening to this while they're driving. That's, that's bad for, for the, uh, it's bad for public and not just our clients. Um, but essentially understand this, when interest rates go up, the value of bonds goes down. Okay. And if you want further explanation of that, by all means, the next time you talk to us or come in for a meeting or, or contact us, just ask for further explanation. We'll explain why that is. But essentially know that when when you see interest rates going up, the value of existing bonds are going down. Um, and so that's why we have a bond market that, again, depending on the market you look at, depending on the day you look at it, it's down somewhere in the 4 to 5% range for the year. Um, that's a pretty bad year in bonds. And that's a year that we haven't seen in quite some time. But the reason why we haven't seen it in quite some time is because we haven't had rising interest rates in, you know, Lord knows how long. So at the end of the day, when we have interest rates going up and when we have them going up, um, not only at a, at a what we refer to as kind of an accelerated pace, but also a landscape looking forward that it gives no indication that the Fed is slowing down. It looks like three to five interest rates, um, uh, three to five interest rate increases, I should say, are, are on the docket for the next uh, 12 months, depending on who you talk to. Um, you know, that, that's a theme that's going to persist for a little while. But the, the good news is there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Once we get rates back to a more normal level and they level off the interest rate increases, you're going to see a bond market that is going to become much friendlier for investors. We just have to go through some pain to get there. So that's, that's another headwind that we're running into this year that we, we have not seen. And uh, I mean, when is the last time we've seen a bond well, market? I was, like I was looking at it a little bit. I think it's been, uh, it's been 10 years since we saw. Um, you know, this is likely to be the worst year in 10 that we've seen because I'm looking at the chart here. Um, the only difference in 2008 was that treasuries were up 13.7% in 2008. Right now, the highest performing asset class as of uh, September 30th, according to this chart here by JP Morgan, is 2.6% uh, in high yield. And then all the rest of it, munis, tips, mortgage backs, aggregate bond treasuries, corporates, emerging market debt, both in local and U.S. dollar currencies are all down. So and actually, you know, if you took this chart on another week, it'd be m even much worse than this because uh, last last week was pretty brutal. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is going to be the worst bond market year in quite some time. And so, if we even stretch the chart, I'd be I'd venture to guess it's been uh, I don't know 15 years. I mean, that's just a guess, but it's probably been 15, maybe 20 years. Yeah, and I think that that's that's the 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 biggest issue um, that's confronting uh, us slash our conservative investors is. You know, kind of where do we go? In other words, uh, if if we want lower volatility, we have to move into an asset class that historically gives us lower volatility, right? I mean, that's pretty obvious. The problem is that asset class, generally speaking, bonds, um, is is not is not performing well this year. So we have we have a lower volatility asset class, which is good. But the problem is that asset class is underwater uh, to the tune of you know, depending on which one you look at, you know, four or five six percent for the year. So. Um, it's just a tough year this year in bonds. And, and um, again, the, the, the beauty of it is that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. It's not a, just a 
um, you know, precipitous fall in values, those those values will stabilize once the Fed kind of slows down its its interest rate uh, rising interest rate raising policy, um, and and that is. Uh, kind of baked into the cake. In other words, I don't know that there's many people out there that think that the Fed's going to raise rates, you know, 15 more times in the next four years. I think people are kind of around the consensus view of maybe three to five interest rate hikes in the next 12 months, somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't know that many people are anticipating rate hikes beyond that level past the next 12 months. So there is somewhat of a light at the tunnel if those do stabilize. Um, and, And it actually... Uh, not predicting the future, but it actually could turn into a really solid uh, bond environment um, if and when that happens. So it, it's a it's some temporary pain to get to uh, to get to a better plateau for sure. Particularly if our insur- inflation stays uh, pretty well contained. Um, you know, the average the twenty year um, annualized returns by asset class. When we look at that chart and it shows what inflation is. It's about two point one percent up until twenty seventeen. It's only going to be a tiny bit higher this year. Um, so, you know, if inflation stays pretty contained and our interest rates go up, we're actually going to see real rates of return that are positive in bonds. So that's that's a good thing. Um, historically speaking, you know, over the last 20 years, bonds have provided a 5% rate of return um, from 98 to 2017, and inflation was 2.1. That's a, that's a pretty positive real rate of return. I don't think we're going to see that for the next 20 years, but... Um, what we may see is if the if Nate's uh, correct and interest rates you know go up and then they stabilize, we could at least get some positive real rate of return um, out of these bonds, and that w- that would be a good thing uh, for sure. So, um, you know, as far as uh, you know, the only other thing we've heard recently from some of our clients, you know, should we really worry about that kind of flattening yield curve? Um, because what I've read has said that that means in that means that recession is imminent, and um, you know when we heard. When I heard uh, Dr. David Kelly speak at J.P. Morgan, um, he indicated that this time might actually be different here um, just because of where we're at in a just kind of unique situation. Um, and he indicated that a flat yield curve wasn't necessarily indicative of being a recession. So we'll see if that plays out that way. But basically what that means is that the short-term rate um, is equal to the long-term rate, or if we get an inverted yield curve that's you know more extreme, the, the short-term rate's actually higher than the long-term rate. So um, that's not a normal occurrence at all. Um, and in general, that's not great, um, historically speaking, from a stock price perspective. I mean, usually it is an, an indicator of recession, but um, I guess it would depend on how extreme it is. If it's pretty flat and it's not... Um, it's not inverted too much. I think we could be okay if it starts to invert and it's really kind of wacky. It might be a, a bad situation. So we'll continue to to monitor all that. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, it's a it's a broader view. And again, we we've touched on different time frames in this podcast. Um, you know, and, and really the focus was trying to explain to people what's happened in the last three months because it's been a, been a pretty. Uh, um, kind of eventful last three months, especially compared to the, the first two quarters of the year. Um, you know, it, this is a pretty big divergence from that. And it's part of the reason, in all honesty, why we're doing these quarterly market reviews, because we want our clients to have a, a better understanding or at least our opinion as to what happened. And, and, and if nothing else, have a um, a good handle on, on um, kind of, okay, that that's why my portfolio did, you know, X or Y or Z or whatever it did. But I think the bigger picture here is that um, we, we, we shouldn't take for granted um, what's happened in the last, call it, five years in the market. I mean, it, it's, it's been a run that is um, 
frankly been uh, um, you know about as good as you could have it. Um, and and I and I, we we understand it's hard. The psychology tells us this as well too. That you know people have you know, uh, kind of half, half as much of the euphoria when positive things happen in their life than they do, um, you know, melancholy, you know, which is doubled on when negative things happen in their life. So there's an inverse relationship between those two things. And I think that that, um, is, is a good, uh, way to kind of explain what's happening too. We don't necessarily feel as good as we should feel when, um, the market gives us what, what we want it to give us or that our portfolios, you know, grow in the way that we want them to grow. Um, but I think it's probably a good time to look back the last five years and go, this has been a pretty historic run. Um, balances and, and portfolios have gained significantly, um, you know, if they were positioned correctly. And so, um, you know, there's always going to be those times where you run into a pause or you run into a little period of time where the market takes back uh, some of what it gave us. And and so let's, let's not be surprised or let's not be, um, uh, you know, disappointed in that, because if we compare the last three months to the last five years, uh, it, it's no comparison in terms of how much better off um, most equity investors are, or even balanced portfolio investors are. So it, just a little bit of perspective on that. Well, none of us like to see weekly reports that show us that we're losing money or looking at our um, you know, blue leaf client login and seeing you know red arrows over the last seven days, 30 days, and whatever we're looking at. Uh, let's not lose perspective in terms of where our balances were, say, five years ago and where they're at now, because for most people, uh, that tells a, a pretty different story. So thank you very much for joining us on this uh, quarterly market update call. I realize it's a little bit uh, longer than our normal thing and our normal uh, podcast, but we appreciate you uh, spending time with us and, and really diving in and getting our perspective on it. If you have any uh, questions, please don't hesitate to contact us. And uh, we'll again put these slides up on our blog. And uh, thanks for listening. You gotta leave your money behind you. Raise your hand to the sky. Ask the masses for silence. Come on, dead in the eye. Advisory services are offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the states of Wisconsin and Texas. Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, and Mitch DeWitt are investment advisor representatives of Walkner Condon. Guests on the podcast are not registered, and their participation in the podcast are limited to unregistered activities and will not be providing any advice that is investment-related, nor should any comments that guests make should be construed as giving investment advice. Content should not be viewed as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned or as legal or tax advice. You should always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, is not engaged in the practice of law. Whenever you invest, you are at risk of loss of principal as the market does fluctuate. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Purchases are subject to suitability. This requires a review of an investor's objective, risk tolerance, and time horizon. Investing always involves risk and possible loss of capital. Long-term care, estate planning, insurance products, and tax advice are not offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC. Walkner Condon works on a best efforts basis and does not guarantee any results. Past performance does not represent future results. Please see walknercondon.com for additional disclosures.